I'm glad you chose to be here tonight. I'm just curious, how many are here for the very first time at a New Hope Good Friday service? Quite a few. Okay, great. Same in the, in the uh, 5 o'clock service. Quite a few people had not been to a New Hope Good Friday service. Uh, regardless of what kind of church experience background you might have, you're going to find this to be a, a little bit different, much like what they've done with the stage. I appreciate the intimate setting that they created here. Um, really very much reminds me of that Last Supper, that intimacy of Jesus with just those followers in a very tight space. You come back on Easter morning, you'll find big stage, backdrop gone, things will be different, but I appreciate the setting for this moment and what we can enjoy here together. What you're going to find that we're going to cover is anchored in truth, and it's anchored in the truth that's found written in Scripture. Specifically, I want to anchor this in Romans for you. We're just going to spend a few minutes in this, and we're about to pick up the elements and celebrate communion, but I want to set it up this way. There's something that you're going to hear repeated throughout the weekend if you come back for the morning Easter services on Sunday. And and it's kind of this theme that comes from Romans 5. Look with me on the screen. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die... But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What an amazing statement. Consider what Paul is framing there for us. So as we move through these things, setting up communion, this makes sense to us. He's saying that, yep, in in certain situations, somebody's willing to jump on a grenade. Guys are serving in the military together. And they recognize that their buddies are being threatened, and there have been instances where someone will die for a good man. They will do it to protect their buddies. And even 2,000 years ago, Paul recognized, yep, somebody would absolutely do that. And then he goes on to say, but God demonstrated His love for us in that while we're yet sinners. So picture it this way. Somewhere in the United States in the next year, someone is sitting on death row and there will be capital punishment extracted, and someone will be put to death, can you imagine an individual going to a prison and saying to the warden, you know, if you would let me, I want to die for that prisoner? It's a really sobering thought. Someone might die for a good person, But would they die for a prisoner condemned to death? Romans is making it very clear, that's us. We're the ones who've been condemned to death. We're we're guilty and worthy of a death sentence, and yet Jesus was willing to die for us while we were still sinners. That's a really important thought to keep in our head. We don't have a lot of traditions here at New Hope, mostly because we're so young as a church. It's almost 15 years old. Um, almost 16 coming up on. And as a 15-year-old church, we haven't had a lot of time to develop traditions, but one particular tradition we have developed is that how we demonstrate the elements on Good Friday will be something I hope is remarkable for you and stays with you throughout the course of the year so that when we do regular communion services, the imagery that you see tonight will resound with you. What we do find that is unique to the church, that is tradition, 
that doesn't fit any place else in culture is the fact that we gathered together on Good Friday to do what we're about to do. In context, put it this way, you don't have to be here. It's gorgeous outside, and we've just come out of winter, and it's Michigan, and you chose on a gorgeous blue sky day to come to church to remember what Jesus did. So that's a really remarkable thing. So I want you to think right now about all the cars that are zooming down Saginaw Highway out here that are seeing the witness of your car parked in the parking lot. What a strong reminder to individuals. Yeah, there's something remarkable about this day. But what's unique to church, this Good Friday thing that doesn't really fit in the rest of culture is this component. Probably the closest comparison is a funeral. What's unique is that we're celebrating a death day. Who does that? Like if I asked you to get together and celebrate Abraham Lincoln's execution, you'd say, well, that's pretty creepy. Why would we do that? And yet we get together to celebrate what he did because of the result of death. Because believers understand this was exactly God's plan. Look with me, Acts 2.23, he, Jesus, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So if I'm leaning into what we saw in the Old Testament, we're working through the E2E series, when Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's what Scripture is telling us. This is the plan of God and what we meant for evil when Jesus was killed, God meant for good. So this day has incredible dichotomy. It has both joy and it has discomfort. And the discomfort comes from the fact that of all days, this day bears the fingerprints of just how fallen we really are. See, to be sure, Jesus was put to death by Pilate and by the Pharisees and by the Sanhedrin and by the Romans and and Pilate and the entire Roman Empire. But ultimately, we all bear responsibility. So if there was a lineup of suspects, we would all be fingered as being guilty for killing Jesus. The entire worldwide population, including those who are not yet born, because we all have our fingerprints on the weapon. And the weapon is sin. Look with me. Scripture says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So on Good Friday, in the midst of our most horrible evil, killing God, God is doing His greatest good. One particular prophecy stands out to me, and it just kind of shouts out. Psalm 16.10 says this, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That Old Testament prophecy is written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus walked the planet, and it's describing this confidence that Jesus has as He's looking at the cross. Why is He so confident? We saw that last Sunday. He's just marching down towards Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. How could he have that kind of confidence? Because he knew, absolutely knew that God was at his right hand. And so Scripture says he would not be shaken. No man took his life from him. He, he gave it willingly to buy us back. One thing that you're going to hear me say on Easter morning is this reality. It cost more to buy you back than it did to make you. That's a stunning thought. God calls a pile of dirt to life. 
We've become a carbon-based life form. But we know ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we go back to the earth again. But it costs the life of God to buy us. That's a stunning, stunning thought. So this last weekend, we talked about the reality that on that particular Sunday, it was Lamb Selection Day when all the lambs would be selected for the people of Israel. And that's the day we find Jesus entering into Jerusalem when 240,000 male, spotless, one-year-old lambs are running through the streets of Jerusalem because they're going to be selected by the Israelites on that very particular day. You can frame it this way. I bet back in November, most individuals here put up a Christmas tree in their house. Maybe you did it in December. Maybe you do it the day before Christmas. I don't know. But you typically go out to select a tree or you pull an artificial tree out of your attic and that becomes something that's in your home. On Lamb Selection Day, the nation of Israel, who descended upon Jerusalem for this particular weekend of Passover, they would, late in the day on Sunday afternoon, practice the habit of selecting the lamb that would come to their home and live with them for four days. And that lamb selected on the 10th of Nisan was staying with them to the 14th of Nisan, and the family intentionally would become very attached to it. And I've often wondered if the children named their lambs, because part of the danger was on the 14th of Nisan, they were to slaughter the lambs. Look with me on the screen. Exodus 12.3, we were just in this this last weekend. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Verse 6, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So on Palm Sunday, the Lamb of God rides into the city of Jerusalem at the same time all the lambs are being gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. And the same day that we call Palm Sunday, Israel's selecting a lamb. And on Thursday, they're slaughtering the lamb at twilight. And Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples doing what you're about to do, being instructed how to remember what he's about to do. So no wonder Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Or what Peter wrote, you were redeemed with precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. And from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible speaks of Christ as our Passover lamb. The very same thing that Michael referred to in the very beginning. When we will get to heaven one day and we will call out, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And people often ask me, do you think we're going to remember when we get to heaven the things that happened here on earth? Do you think we'll have memory of these things? And I would say, absolutely, yes. How can you not fully worship God if you can't remember what you were saved from? Worship in itself is worship because of what happened in your life. You're going to worship fully because you have memory of what Jesus did for you. There's other instances by which I could tell you how you'll have memory in heaven, but we won't get into that tonight. Yeah, absolutely, we're going to be able to worship because we understand what happened. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem four days before Passover. It's not coincidence whatsoever. The lambs are chosen on the 10th of Nisan. They're slaughtered on Thursday, the fourth day after they pick them up. It's visible to everybody. 
And historians tell us one other detail. Historians tell us that those lambs, they were all raised in Bethlehem. All the very best of the best of the best lambs were raised in the pastures outside of Bethlehem. If they weren't raised there, they couldn't be used on Passover day. The imagery is absolutely overwhelming when you put the pieces together, just like the fulfilled prophecies are. Let me show you one. Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah wrote that 400, 500 years in advance of Jesus even walking the planet. How could he know that? That's an exact match for what happened to Jesus when you look at Matthew 27, 12. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. It's one thing when you don't have any authority and any power to defend yourself, but when you hold all the power, when you can call legions of angels, which Jesus said could happen, if he only spoke it, when you hold all the power yet you still remain silent and allow yourself to be chained and tortured, and Jesus holds his tongue, and you and I find ourselves in the aftermath, remembering this weird thing of a, a death day because it brought us life. So likely society would look at this and say, what is going on? Why would you celebrate somebody dying? Well, we've been blessed with a way to specifically remember this because of what Jesus gave us, these elements you're about to pick up. And we're not repeating, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus, we're remembering according specifically to what He said. So leaning one more time back into 1 Corinthians 5, look what Paul wrote, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed, therefore let us celebrate the feast. Now, if you're new to New Hope, you're gonna find that what you're gonna pick up are a double cup system there's two cups, one has the juice in it, and there's a second cup underneath it that has the bread in it, and you're gonna pick it up and say, this doesn't look like a feast. It's pretty small. Well, it's not because of the size of it, but obviously the size of what it represents. So he says, let us remember this and celebrate the feast. So what did Jesus specifically say? He said it in Luke 22:19. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, we're remembering. We're not repeating. We're not re-sacrificing. He only had to die once because that's why it was finished. He did it one time for all purpose. So when Jesus held up that bread that he's speaking of there, he was specifically holding up unleavened bread. And unleavened bread looks like this. If you go today to the market, to the grocery store, you can go down to Meyer, down to Kroger, you can go to grocery stores all over the nation. And if you go to the international food aisle, you will find something that looks like this. It's called matzah. If you're not familiar with matzah, it has to be very specific to be used at Passover. 
First of all, it has to have been blessed by a rabbi, and it, it has to have this kosher standard to it, and, and you'll see it stamped on the side of the boxes today. But that's not what it looked like back at that period of time. However, there's much similarity to what I'm holding in my hand. First of all, you understand that three things had to be true to be used as Passover bread and still used to this very day. The very first thing is that it had to be unleavened, and that's why it's flat. My wife has been making bread for us at our home, and you know that leavening puffs up bread. It makes it very, very full. But Jesus had no sin. He was not puffed up in any way. And so unleavened bread means it can't be puffed up. There's nothing to make it bigger. So it's very, very flat. But for Passover bread to be used, it also had to be striped. Now, this is something that I didn't know until I was in my 30s. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a Jewish scholar that I leaned into, explained this to me. And he said, Mark, you know that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, and no one knows when it even began, that when they were making Passover bread, it began to be striped. And it was suspected that it was because it was put into the ovens, and the oven grates that they laid it on, the hot stones, left a striping aspect. But you can see all the stripes in this matzah piece that I'm holding. And very specifically, this had to be flat and it had to be striped, but one other thing had to be true, it had to be pierced. In other words, it had to have holes in it. So I've got this little illustration for you. Hopefully you can see this. You can see the holes that are all the way through it. Now today for matzah bread to be used in a Passover ceremony, all those things that I just said to you are true. When you pick up the bread today, you'll be picking up unleavened bread that's considered communion bread because it meets all these same standards. Uh, prior to COVID, we were breaking these things up. And when the church was much smaller, we would put these things in little Ziploc baggies and break them down into little bitty pieces and put them in a bowl. And along came COVID and nobody wanted to touch the bread that other people were touching. So it got put into a two cup system and you'll pick it up that way now. But those three things had to be true of it. So. If it wasn't unleavened, it couldn't be used. If it wasn't striped, it couldn't be used. And if it didn't have holes in it, it couldn't be used. Why is that significant? Well, Jesus knew no sin, so therefore he's never puffed up. Jesus was striped by a Roman whip when they beat his body, and Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions. So Scripture says this, in Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So picture Jesus holding up that piece of Passover bread on that night of the Last Supper, and he's holding up bread like I just described to you, and he says, this is my body. It's going to be pierced. It's going to be striped, and I have no sin in me. He didn't need to say those things. The disciples understood the background of the bread. So he was pierced through for our transgressions. I found this is a really good place for you and I to say, for me. So how about if we do that together on three? On three, let's say, for me. One, two, three. For me. He was pierced through for me. It makes it a whole lot more personal, doesn't it? was shed for me, and he was pierced through when the nails and the spear went right through his body. But that doesn't just stop there with the imagery. All this imagery leads up to the cup, the, the last component of this. 
Verse 20 says this, and in the same way, meaning he wanted us to remember, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, there is really powerful symbolism in the cup because this isn't just any cup. This is a Passover meal, a Passover Seder. If you haven't been to a Jewish Seder Passover meal before, I encourage you to do that, one that's really oriented towards the things of Christ. But these are all rooted in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. I'm not going to put them on the screen for you. I'm just going to paint this imagery for you. God made a commitment to Moses that Moses was supposed to relay to the people of Israel, and there were these elements that were part of this Passover cup. The first one, the first cup that was used in the Passover Seder is called the cup of sanctification. When God said, I will bring you out. And the next one was the cup of plagues in which God said, I'm going to free you. And the third cup is the cup that you're going to lift in just a moment. The cup that we understand called the cup of redemption in which God said, I will redeem you. And the fourth cup that was used was the cup of praise in which God said, I will take you for myself and make you my own. Uh, after that, typically in a Passover Seder, they would sing a hallel, a hymn at the end of it. And you find that very thing when you read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record that when the disciples left the upper room, they went out singing a hymn, obviously probably singing the hallel. So let's keep all this in context now. God the Son becomes Jesus the man and condescends to live among us and is willing to show us what life with God is supposed to look like. But as a result of that, he has to allow the humans to arrest him, chain him, beat him, and then pin him to a cross. Men whom he personally created... He allows them to drive spikes through his ankles and through his arms, through his wrists, and drive a spear through his side, using the most evil instrument of death known to man, specifically designed so it would be bringing the greatest degree of torture to a human being, that of the Roman crucifixion. And that's why I said, while humanity is doing its greatest evil, God is at work doing His greatest good. So carry that thought with you to the table as you're about to come up to them. In the very back of the auditorium in the atrium, there's tables set up and here in the front. And there'll be individuals standing next to the table and they'll remind you of what you're doing, what you're picking up, simply say to you, the body and the blood of Christ. But if you would take those elements back to your seat and hold on to them, I'll talk you through the rest. This time right now is for you to talk to the Heavenly Father, but I'm gonna start you off. I'm gonna pray with you first but I'm gonna ask you to spend some time talking to God about your relationship with Him. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you are more than welcome to participate in this communion service. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul that's in this auditorium, and I know every single one is precious to you. I do pray that you would use this time right now to cement in our minds and remind us of who we are to you and what you did for us. And Father, in these moments, if we have anything to bring to you to confess, I, I know that we can do that, and you'll forgive us our sins. So Father, I pray that we would not take what we're about to do lightly, but rather we would take it seriously and understand the weight of what we're about to proclaim. Thank you for the witness that's going on in this auditorium. 
We praise you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.